Greetings, everyone. Welcome to our very first Diversity and Inclusion Storytellers podcast in collaboration with the Practice in the Pillars podcast. I am Master Sergeant Jay Redor, the Airman Leadership School Commandant here at Whiteman Air Force Base. With me, with me this morning is Major Shianti Frank, and I am the Mental Flight Commander, a part of the MID Group. Our special guest this morning is uh, CMAS Sergeant Cordell Roberson from the 509th Healthcare Operations Squadron, and I'm the superintendent over there. All right. So this morning, Senior Master Sergeant Robeson is here to tell us his story. So, Senior, where does your story begin? Uh, my story, I guess, I'll start with where I grew up in um, Stone Mountain, Georgia. It's uh, what we call the east side of Atlanta, so it's like 20 minutes outside of Atlanta. But um, I grew up there. Um, growing up, you know, I saw a lot of – I experienced a lot of racism, if you want to say, um, because – we always called it the capital for the KKK because they used to do, it seemed like they would do every weekend, but at least once a month they would have a rally or a march. And so what seemed to us as normalcy was, you know, now looking back on it, it was, you know, just racism, but that was normalcy for us. I mean, coming up where I, where I came from, like it was nothing to come out in the morning and see uh, posters on your cars throughout the whole neighborhood saying, you know, thank you N-words for killing each other and doing our job for us. So growing up like that, you think you would grow up with a warped mind and only, you know, and kind of go that route that they went and be forced to just be, you know, against another race. But, you know, you learn that that's not everybody. That's just that group of people that had that in their mindsets. Quick question for you, Sarge. So uh, you mentioned a little bit about the area you grew up in. Um, what, what did your core group of friends look like at that age at that age um most of my friends were um all black um i i did have in the beginning i did well not in the beginning but i did have a couple of uh, white friends but those mainly came from me playing football and that's how i met those guys and then along with school so tell us about the reasons why you joined the military um i joined the military because as i graduated high school um, just like a lot of people, there's really nothing to do. Um, I was, I got injured in high school, which it kind of messed up my chances for scholarship. And so I was just sitting around doing nothing. And, uh, my mom took me to the uh, recruiter's office. She tricked me. I thought we were going to go get some, um, groceries that day. Cause it wasn't nothing in the house. And, um, I, you know, I passed a little test, took the test for the recruiter passed. And um, I came in, and I had only really planned to do it for uh, that four years and get out because I was like, the military isn't me. But um, along the way, I met people, and they helped me grow into a better man, and I just stayed. So let's talk about your experiences at that early age when we, when we talk about forming your opinions. So how do you think your upbringing, where you lived, the things that you went through influenced your, the way you think? Um, I think it helped out tremendously because, like I said, um, I learned that not everybody in that race is the same. Like, you know, you see a group of white people screaming white power, you understand that that's not everybody that's white. That's just a group of people. Um, I mean, like, because I, I knew KKKs 
not knew them personally, but I, I knew the groups of the KKKs, and then I had in um, run-ins with skinheads. And what I found out is that the skinheads are the ones that you really don't want to mess with because they really, really believe in their uh, movement, and they're really ready to fight and die for it. So I learned how to kind of do conversations with them to get out of altercations. But with the KKK, you know, it was just we considered them as cowards because they hid behind their their mask. But it did teach me, like I said, it taught me that not everybody in that group is like that, just like how as blacks we were being identified that every black is the same. And it just being in that environment helped me understand that not every black person is the same. Not every white person is the same or any race at that matter. So it did shape me in a good way. So can you go into a bit more detail about one of those particular experiences or situations and how you navigated those challenges? Yeah, um, one incident that I, I remember that kind of, I don't want to say shaped me, but just always played in the back of my mind. Um, I was about in the seventh or eighth grade and I was dating or talking to this uh, white girl, me and her were, you know, liking each other or whatever. And, um, you know, we, after school, we talk on the phone and all that stuff. And then one day she was just like, oh man, I got to go. And I'm like, what's wrong? She's like, my dad came home early and she's like frantic. And I'm like, okay, so what is he doing? Home? You know, what does that have to keep, why do you have to get out the phone? And she was like, my dad ever said that if, if she caught me talking to a black guy, he would kill me. And when she said that, it just hit me like, man, like this man would kill his daughter for talking to somebody of another race. And I, I just couldn't fathom why he would think that way. And then from there on, it like, I mean, at that early age, it just, my mind was just open to like, man, like people that are against blacks really have a hate for us. And I couldn't understand why. Cause you know, at the time I didn't have kids of course, but I could never understand killing one of my own because they like something that I don't like. So that it just opened my mind and made me see the world in a different way. So that was one of the ones that comes, comes to mind quickly, you know? So one of the conversations I remember us having Sarge back when we were um, getting ready to gear up for the Juneteenth event here on Whiteman. Um, we talked about our experiences before the, the air force and how some of us grew up in areas that were really, really culturally diverse and never really experienced any kind of racism and one of the points that br that was brought up in that meeting was maybe we just didn't know how to identify it. But I think listening to your story and, and how you talk about some of your experiences, you were, you were able to kind of identify what racism looks like at an early age. And may, maybe those might have been some traumatic experiences, but that may have been a, a blessing in disguise because you, you, were, you were able to kind of identify and see past the veil. Right. Yeah, um, and it was a blessing, I guess, if you want to call it that. Uh, but it was because I could, I could understand and I saw things. And, you know, like I said, I, I learned that everybody's not that way. And even in my own uh, group, I had to understand that, you know, like um, there were some black people that grew up differently than me. There's some some of my black friends grew up in a white neighborhood and we teased them for growing up in that neighborhood and not being like the rest of us. So. I just realized that it became more of a environmental thing, you know, um, than anything like the saying goes, you know, um, you, you are, you are a product of your environment. So that's what, um, I realized growing up early. How do you use that information to guide your decision-making on a daily basis when you encounter people? <laughs> that's a good question. Um, when it, I, 
I look at everybody as people. Um, and I'm not trying to like quote Martin Luther King or nothing like that, but I really judge people on the content of their character because like I said, like, you know, I could, it could be somebody black and they just, they could just be very malicious and I'm not going to just have favoritism because they're black and vice versa. Um, but I look at the the character of the person and that, and that's one thing I think that everybody should start doing. Just look at the character of that person and find out what that person is interested in and how can you help that person not looking at them as a color. And even in our case here in the military, looking at them as a rank, because a lot of people come uh, with a lot of experience, no matter where they came from. So you have to look at that. And I think a lot of times we get caught up in the rank and then some people get caught up in the color, but it's kind of hidden when they do that. So, so you mentioned you have kids, Sarge. So, my question to you is, how do you walk that fine line between allowing your kids to still have a childhood and not scaring them when you share with them the stories of your childhood and things to be aware of that they might not necessarily see on a regular basis? Man, another good question. <laughs> and and that, that's, that one's been a tough one because um, my kids, being in the military, they have been shielded from a lot of, a lot of the um, racism that's out there. Um, but... I do the same. I, I tell them to treat everybody equally until they have proven that they've done wrong by you, you know, like treat everybody fairly. Um, it has been difficult when I talk to them, I let them know that's what I experienced or their mother experienced. And if you ever experience somebody, something like this, don't, you know, just come talk to us so we can talk about it. And only I have two daughters, one that's 21 and one that's 13 and my 21-year-old is the only one so far that has told us that she's experienced um, some racism. So having that talk was a little tough because she didn't understand why somebody didn't like her because of the color of her skin. And that was that was tough because, like I said, growing up for me, it was it was normal. Like, it was every day. It was just out there. So it was just a part of our life. But for her, being in the military and moving around, and it's a little bit more of a diverse community she was shielded from it. So that was, it was a tough talk. And those are just, man, those are just ones that you come up on the fly and you're like, man, how am I going to handle this? There's no book for it. So you just have that conversation, that tough talk. On the same note, how do you use your experiences to support the airmen that you lead? Um, With my experiences, I, I use my experience with the airmen because I understand how like it was when I came in. I was a knucklehead coming off the streets. Like, you know, like all I knew is what I knew. Um, I talked like my environment, you know, um, like for instance, like my, my wife used to, when I first met her, she was like, why do you cut your words short? And I was like, what do you mean? I cut my words short. And then she said, and then she explained to me, she's like right there. And I was like, Oh, I didn't know. And cause I was always got frustrated when I came in the military. Cause people used to be like, they used to always ask me, like, what are you saying? And I'm like, am I not speaking English? But it was because I was using the slang that I had grew up with in my environment. And so, like, what I tell, what I try to tell people now is, like, you have to be a little bit more patient with these airmen because I'm coming from my experience because coming out the street, like, I grew up with a single in a single uh, parent household because my uh, father was murdered by his best friend. And not to bring it down on that, but uh, he was murdered by his best friend. And um, so I grew up in a single parent household and I realized that coming into the military was a stretch for me because I never took orders from a male. 
unless it was my football coach. And those guys, you respect it, so you would take orders from them. But And I think that's the struggle that a lot of people don't realize in the military. Like, these people are just coming fresh off the street. Their families have turned them over to us to lead and guide in their absence. And you can't just expect them to know the military right away. I give – not that I'm lenient or anything. I still follow the rules or whatever, but I try to – brace those guys and I give them a year maybe 18 months to get adapted because it's it is it's a it's a new learning environment then I think about the people that went to college think about your first two years in college how did you how were you your first two years of college you didn't know anything but then as you you know got on you you developed those skills so it's the same way with the people coming into the military so that's how I try to use my day-to-day operations when they come to me with issues or whatever they may come to me for Another question on, on the airmen you lead. Um, we we're having a conversation a few few days ago, and we talked about how between basic training, tech school, and the first few months that an airman is in the military, that's that's a short amount of time to try to change some things that if they had a lifelong experience with, where whether it's racism, what their thoughts and beliefs are. How do you manage that from a leader's perspective and trying to incorporate these airmen into our organizations? They may have different viewpoints than the collective. I think it's um, one of those situations where you just have to listen to the airmen. Uh, you listen to them and get to know them, and you find out, like, what they like, what they dislike, what, what they're into. And then with that, you try to pair them up with somebody who may be into the same thing. Like, there was one airman who came to me who had just recently arrived and was into, you know, making music, making beats. So I, I um, teamed them up with another uh, airman who was – into the same thing and then that way it gives them a quick bond or something that they can you know kind of cling to until they get until they get their feet under them and realize the um, environment that they're in and branch out on their own but it's just really getting that connecting to this connecting this um, together while they're um, fresh out of basic and all that stuff because basic is a is a shock I mean basic is like I hate to say it like this but it's like a quick uh, encounter with jail like you know because you you just come off where you do anything mom and dad have probably been cleaning your room cooking for you and then you come to basic where you got to do everything yourself and if you don't do it you're getting yelled at fussed at or whatever so it's a it's a different environment so all right so you're hitting on some key things I think what stands out and what you just shared is understanding um, a person's situation taking the patience to Um, grasp that concept and the empathy associated with trying to get to know people. Um, Those are some key concepts when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Um, But I'd be interested in hearing your definition of uh, diversity and inclusion and what that would look like. Uh, Diversity and inclusion to me is really multiple races and multiple genders getting together. Like, um, one of the issues I encountered when I was uh, at one of my bases, I was the um, CSC person. I was the resiliency, the head MRT for the wing. And I was at one of the wing meetings. And um, afterwards, I'd stay back to talk to the group commander, just uh, the wing commander, I'm sorry, to ask him. I was like, sir, I'm just making an observation, looking at this table here um, with all your leaders sitting around it. You know, let's say there's 16 people. Three of those were females. Um, All three females were white, and the rest were males, all white. I said, 
I don't feel you can make good decisions because you don't have a diverse, you know, um, panel uh, advising you because, you know, you're making the decision based off basically a culture of the same people. So I always look at um, inclusion as being, you know, a good mix of different people from different backgrounds. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to, you don't have to try to go in there and, you know, 50, 50 it, but you need to have a good collective to get that, um, get the right, make the right decisions because how you may um, do good for one race or gender, it may not be good for that other. So you need that, you need that feedback so that you can make the best, right, the best informed decision. So diversity of thought is important. Oh yeah. Um, I think if you're in any leadership position, you got to have that diversity. I mean, a lot of us do it in, in relationships or even in whether it's you're married or whether you have people that you go to, you, you get diverse. Like you, you know, you may, for some situations, you're not going to go to somebody that doesn't really have, um, if you're trying to make money, you're not going to go to somebody that's making probably less than you. You're going to go to somebody that's making the same as you to get their input, but then you're also going to try to talk to somebody that's making way more than you to get their input to see how you can get there. So you got to be diverse, um, you know, so. All right, so one more question as it relates to, um, I guess, leadership and diversity. So diversity as a whole, in the last few, let's say the last few years, there's been a lot of things come to light, and there's a lot of things that we as a society have found ourselves trying to play catch up or get smart on. And one of those things is the way the Air Force is moving forward, or not just the Air Force, but the, the armed forces are moving forward with diversity and inclusion as it relates to sexual orientation. So diversity for one group is not, it's not, we can't really separate it. It's diversity for us all. So has, have you met any challenges with, with that in your units in the past? Hmm. I guess the only challenge that I've found for me is, um, with same sex relationships when those members come to me and express cause, and they've taught me, they have taught me how they've been left out of certain things and how they have been discriminated against for, um, their sexual preferences. And so like I have found one in my unit that has, um, been very open to me and I, ask if I can ask questions and I tell them like, I I'm asking you these because I don't know. And I want to make sure that I'm making the right choice. And that person actually thanked me for doing that because they said like, I wish more people would do that. And I think that's where as leaders, we've, we've gotten scared to ask those questions. We're scared to open up like that. But it's like, if I don't know, I, f I feel it's better to ask somebody who is in that situation because then I can help it'll help me make a better informed decision than just trying to guess and think I'm doing the right thing. So I've, I've just found that sitting down with people and just having those tough conversations, um, you know, asking those tough questions is just easy. I mean, it's just like, I always tell people if, if you're of a different race and you have a question about a black person or whatever, I don't speak for every black person, of course, but ask me, you know what I'm saying? I'd rather you ask me, I mean, you, you know, Careful how you ask sometimes, but just just put your feelings out there. Just say, look, I'm only asking this question. I'm not trying to offend. I just want to know and put it out there. But that's how I've dealt with the, um, those certain situations. When I don't know, I get somebody from that group, and, and I'll ask what, whatever group it's from, if it's from another race, gender, or whatever. I, 
I go talk to them because they're going to be the SME on that, as we say. You mentioned uh, one thing earlier, Sarge, and I kind of wanted to double back to it. Um, You mentioned that you were in a meeting one time where you were the only African-American male in that room. In situations like that, how do you ensure that your voice is being heard? It's just really in those situations is really like it can be intimidating at times. No, I'm not going to lie, but you just sit back and what I do is I sit back and I listen. And honestly, if it really doesn't make sense or I think they're about to, um, you know, make the wrong decision or choice, I'll just raise my hand and speak up. I know everybody doesn't feel that way. And but sometimes you just got to put yourself out there. And, you know, my mom always taught me if you think something is wrong, speak up don't stand by, you know, saying do something about it. So I just always been that way. And, you know, as you grow in the Air Force or the military and you gain rank, it's a little bit easier to, to speak up. You know, as you're younger, it's a little, little bit harder or more intimidating. But as you gain that rank, it's easier to speak up. And then I found that speaking up, um, a lot of a lot of people in leadership appreciate that because they are like, man, didn't think about it from that aspect. And so they'll you know, it makes them adjust course, readjust, and then figure out how they're going to tackle that decision that they're making. All right. So um, some of the things you've stated, I can glean that you definitely have a lot of uh, wisdom and experiences um, on the topic. But speaking of that, has there been a time that maybe you've gotten something wrong when it comes to the topic of diversity inclusion? And what would you recommend to um, members if, say, um, they misstep when it comes to the topic so that they can build that relationship or in, um, address some of the mishaps in the relationship with the people they work with or the airmen that they support? So you're saying, I, I'm trying to just make sure I understand. So you're saying, like, if if you made the wrong decision, how do you correct that? Yes. Um, kind of the same thing, like, um, sit some, sit down with whoever and figure out what I did wrong and then let them tell me. And then from there, I tend to, um, go seek assistance from somebody that's smarter than me in that area. And then I'll, you know, I'll bring that back and see if this is a better route. It's basically just like, um, you know, it may be, I may go talk to, my chief or, and it doesn't even have to be a higher up. It could be someone, um, you know, lower than me or whatever, however you want to say it. Um, but just asking them like, where do you feel I messed up in this? Um, and then they'll tell me their feedback and it gives me that different, uh, view and perspective to look at it from because I was just being tunnel vision on my choice. So, um, that's what I tend to do a lot. A lot of that had a lot of uh, the readjustments that I come from, I, I bounce off my wife. She's a retired mass sergeant. Um, so I bounce it off her and she has a whole different uh, perspective because we're day and night. And so when she gives me her perspective, I'm able to look at it and think like, ah, oh, I can see how that would have been better compared to what I did because sometimes you just get tunnel vision. So it's really just um, finding out what you did wrong and being, I guess if humble about it to understand that you did wrong and then readjust and stand up, say, Hey, I did wrong, but here's a better route that we can go. So one question as it relates to your career, Sarge. So 
I think we talked offline and you mentioned you're on the, the tail end of your career. So being military, we travel a lot. We don't get an opportunity to really set down roots. So now that your your next chapter is getting ready to be written and you, you might have the opportunity to set down roots, how do you plan to use some of the things you've learned throughout your travels and your time in the Air Force when you settle down and, and plant some roots? Um, the the one thing I really wanted to get involved with is um, like youth counseling. I used to be a, a football coach for um, in the community when I was in one of the at one of my bases, but um, I really want to deal with the youth because I think that's where that's where it's needed. Uh, you know, as we become adults, we kind of get set in our own little ways. But the youth, um, I know I needed guidance when I was a a youth. Like I mentioned earlier, I didn't grow up with any male role models or anything, so. I needed that, and so for me, it's like I always like to give back and try to help you not come into the shortfalls that I came. If you can go around that hurdle instead of going over it, you know, I'm going to try to help you get get through it like that. But um, I really want to sit down with the youth, whether it's in football or school counseling, and I want to talk to them because so so often we write them off. You could have a kid who's just doing bad, but that's just because – in their environment or at home or whatever, they're not getting the attention that they need. And once again, it's just that nobody's really taking that time to sit down with that kid and just say, Hey, like, what are you doing? And and a lot of times, man, it's just really straight talk. Like you got to have straight talk with those kids and stop trying to talk to them. Like, Oh, you know, like in the little kid voice, you got to have straight talk. I I do the same thing with my airmen. Um, They come into the office and I'll tell them stripes on or stripes off. If they say stripes off, it's Cordell's opinion, not the Air Force. So if you go out of here and say that Sergeant Roberson said this, I'm going to be like, Sergeant Roberson didn't say that. Like, Cordell said that, and I told, you know, I give him that caveat, unless it's something that I have to report. But um, it's just really that straight talk. And from what I found talking to anybody, whether it's young or old, they like it when they they get it straight. Some people can't take it because it's the truth, but most people like it because – they're like, man, you know, nobody's ever told me that. So now that I, I know they can do better. So to answer your original question, it would be um, to work with the youth because, you know, they are the future, seriously. So. All right. So going back to the concept of practicing the pillars, you've mentioned numerous things throughout our discussion today. You talked about utilizing your support system, Um, doing some self-reflection to enhance um, your behaviors and interactions with others. What other things do you do to take care of yourself and what advice do you have to people who may have experienced some sort of uh, racism, discrimination um, to help them cope with those kind of experiences? Okay. Um, So for me, one of the things that I do to – relieve stress honestly is uh to do jigsaw puzzles um i normally do like 2000 or more pieces so that really relaxes me because it forces me to concentrate on the piece and where it needs to go so it shuts everything out else out because anything else i do like i can still be my mind can still be going a thousand miles per, uh, per hour so the puzzles just help me uh focus but as far as the, you said the the racism that I've, you know, um, can you repeat that question? I'm sorry. Just with the racism you've experienced throughout your life, what kind of things did you use at those various oh. moments to cope as well? That was hard because growing up, 
I was I was a hothead, so I used <laughs> I used the wrong coping skills. But um now it's it's really just um you know, taking that minute, taking that breath to think about it. Um honestly and and I'm not gonna I'm not sitting here blowing smoke up everybody and using the Air Force um, you know, isms, but really one thing that helped me as I since I've been in the Air Force is the resiliency skills that we learned. And honestly, the one is um, being thankful. So like I always, when I tend to get mad now, like I think of what I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for that. My family is healthy, that my daughters are here. So just starting to have those thoughts, it calms you down because you're like, Oh man, I got way more to lose than if I go over here and handle this knucklehead, you know? So, um, those are the coping skills I learned. And then just the, um, the mentors that I've had too, because, you know, you, they teach you, they teach you stuff as, uh, as I came up through here, because I was lucky enough to have a couple, what, um, what the folks call me now, old heads to, uh, (laughs) sit down and, uh, tell me like, Hey, don't do this. Don't do that. This is what you want to do. Point me in the right direction. So I always just play back on those skills that I learned from them, as well as some of those, um, resiliency skills that I did learn. Uh, yes, sir. Um, Father time is undefeated. Everyone has to <laughs> fight their own battles. That's true. All right. So again, thank you for sharing your story with us, Sarge. Um, do you have any closing remarks before we go ahead and wrap it up? Uh, thank, thank the both of you for allowing me to be on here, um, sharing my story. I really didn't think I had a story, but I appreciate y'all for, um, you know, talking to me and allowing me on this show. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so again, thank you for tuning in. Hopefully you were, you were able to learn something from the story of uh, Sarge, Sergeant Roberson. I know I was. There was a lot of things about him that I didn't know and a lot of things from his story that I was able to learn. And even though I didn't have the experience those myself, I'm able to share that experience with someone else. So thank you for your time. Have a good one.